Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.16, Agrippina Minor, A Meddling Mother. One lesson that I have never been able to learn while doing this podcast is to never make claims about how long a series is going to be before it is over, because I'll inevitably find that there's far too much to say and end up having to extend the series. And so it is again today. So while I claimed last week that this would be the last chapter on Agrippina, it will actually only be the penultimate one. We left her last week at the height of her power. Today, We'll see how she expressed and wielded that power in the early days of Nero's reign, and how eventually she was brought down. Then, next week, we will see her grisly end. We are very nearly at the end of this first season of The Other Half, and therefore, it won't be long until we will be ploughing into season two. The decision on what that will be is currently in the hands of my wonderful patrons, who are currently exercising their democratic will over on the Patreon page. There are three options up for the vote, an early modern topic, a more recent topic, and an exciting combined periods one. If you are a patron and haven't yet had your say, then head on over to the page and check it out. If you aren't, well, you're running out of time, as a decision will be made in the next couple of weeks or so. Whichever of those you are, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You only need to pledge $1 per month to have your say. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. We ended last time with the death of Claudius, probably Agrippina's hand, and the accession of her son Nero. His coming to the throne was the culmination not only of her own life's work, but also, in many people's eyes, saw the righting of a wrong that dated back all the way to the murder of Germanicus. He had been denied the throne through the malicious deeds of Tiberius, and now his grandson would rule in his stead, just as Caligula had and ensure that the emperorship of Rome would remain in the Julian half of the Julio-Claudian family for generations to come. 
Suffice it to say, that did not happen. Nero has gone down in history as one of Rome's worst emperors. If we discount the really disputed ones and those that ruled for like 30 seconds, historians tend to come up with a similar short list of names for who is the absolute worst. Nero's image has been slightly rehabilitated in recent years, so he's no longer compared to men such as Caligula, Caracalla and Commodus, but he still ranks only just above them. The phantom menace to their attack of the clones, if you will. Like the reign of Tiberius, his reign tends to be divided into two by modern historians, pre-Agrippina's murder and post. While no one denies that the second half of his reign was goddamn awful, the first five years or so were not actually that bad. The government ran fairly smoothly, the economy was on reasonable footing, and relations with the Senate were okay. But the reason that that was so had a lot to do with the fact that the emperor didn't have an awful lot to do with the business of actually governing the empire during that time. That was generally left to the experts. Claudius had intended for the imperial crown to be shared after his death between his stepson Nero and his natural son Britannicus, born to his third wife Messalina. But the combined work of three figures would ensure that it would be Nero alone that took the throne. The first, of course, was Agrippina. It was she, probably, that killed her husband, and then carefully ensured that all the right people were brought in, and all those opposed were kept in the dark, right up until the conditions were just right. Second was Burrus, the Praetorian prefect. He was a long-term ally of Agrippina, and had been in the imperial service for quite some time. He had started in the household of Livia, and Agrippina had ensured that he gained his position as prefect, ensuring his support for Nero when the time came. And finally, there was Seneca, whom we've talked a lot about already. His contribution came right at the end, providing Nero with an eloquent and persuasive speech that ensured that the guard proclaimed him emperor. It would be these three figures... Agrippina, Burrus, and Seneca, there would be the chief influences behind the scenes during Nero's first few years in office, and their power struggles would define the course of his entire reign. After Nero was proclaimed emperor by the guard, the matter went to the Senate. They then eagerly awaited the reading of the late emperor's will. This had occurred after the deaths of Augustus and Tiberius, but it never happened on this occasion. Now, this may have been because there never had been a will, though that seems unlikely to me. More plausible is that there had been a will, but it was suppressed, as it wouldn't have favoured the new regime. Even if it didn't explicitly name Britannicus a co-heir, it would likely have given him a place in the administration and a healthy inheritance. But while Nero and Agrippina may well have willfully disregarded Claudius's final wishes regarding the throne and his estate, they did at least ensure that he departed in some style. Tacitus states that, quote, His funeral rites were solemnised on the same scale as those of Augustus, for Agrippina strove to emulate the magnificence of her great-grandmother, Livia. Claudius lay in state for five days, after which Nero gave another well-regarded speech, again written by Seneca, eulogising his dearly departed stepdad. He then went to the Senate and asked them to deify Claudius, to which they regularly agreed, making him the second emperor to become a god after death, along with Augustus. One imagines, given their disdain for him during his reign, that they wouldn't have been exactly thrilled by this, but they were whipped into doing so by Agrippina, 
whose skill at cultivating the Senate's will had been such a hallmark of her empressship. As part of the process of deification, a cult would need to be set up and priests appointed, and among them was Agrippina, again following in the footsteps of Livia, who had been a priestess of the cult of Augustus. She also took charge of the construction of the temple that would be the focus of the worship of Claudius. It was built on the Caelian Hill and was an incredibly grand structure. Sadly, it was damaged in the Great Fire of 64 and later destroyed by Nero to make way for an aqueduct. With all that done, it was time for the real rule of Nero to finally begin. For the first few months of his reign, Agrippina ruled supreme. Her son was still only a teenager, and while he had gained some valuable experience in governance during the role of his stepfather, he had nothing like the skills that his mother had honed for decades. For now, he was openly compliant to her. He gave her the title of Optima Mater, or Best Mother, and when they travelled the streets they would either share a litter, or he would even walk alongside her, an amazing show of deference. Cassius Dio states that, quote, At first Agrippina managed for him all the business of the empire. She also received the various embassies and sent letters to peoples and governors and kings. These are all honours and responsibilities comparable to those heaped upon Livia, but, in fact, Agrippina managed to do one better. Women were famously never permitted to enter the Senate chamber, and Agrippina was not able to break that glass ceiling. But she ensured that the body met on the Palatine Hill, her domain, and installed her own private rear door to the chamber and listened to proceedings behind a curtain. So far as I'm aware, this had never been done before outside of criminal trials. While she was out of sight there, she was not out of mind, and able to influence proceedings purely by her presence. She was not offending tradition, but still able to exercise tremendous power. In addition to this, she was also given a number of honours that elevated her profile to new, even greater heights. She was granted the use of two lictors, essentially a combination of bodyguards and herald bearers. Their role was to walk in front of their official, bearing the fasces, a symbol of Roman power, and to clear the path. Lictors were granted to people of high rank and station, but almost never to women. The chief of the Vestal Virgins was one such figure, but she only ever got one. Livia too had had the use of just one, and then it was only when acting in the capacity of chief of the cult of the deified Augustus. By granting Agrippina the permanent use of two lictors, the Senate was acknowledging her as a high-ranking official in the government of Nero, something that had never been done before. This was then cemented by her appearances in the coinage. This was the only way that most Romans knew who their leaders were and what they looked like, and one can gauge so much from how often people like Agrippina appeared and how they were depicted. Shortly after Nero became emperor, new gold and silver coins were minted, depicting her and Nero facing each other on the same side the first time that this had ever occurred. On that side, the obverse, the inscription reads, Agrippina Augusta, Divii Claudii, Neronis Caesar Mater. For those amongst you who don't read faultless Latin, that translates as Agrippina Augusta, wife of the divine Claudius, mother of Nero Caesar. In that description, we can see the three pillars of her prestige. As Augusta, she is basking in the reflected glory of her ancestors, most notably the Emperor Augustus. 
As wife of Claudius, she gained her title of empress, and now wife of a god. And now she was also the proud mother of the sitting emperor. While these coins were probably the most effective pieces of propaganda used to promote her new exalted position, they are not the most striking. That honour lies with the relief from the Temple of Augustus, or Sebasteon, at Ophrodisias in modern western Turkey. I put a link to it in the show notes and is also the display image for this episode. It depicts mother and son together, with Agrippina carrying a cornucopia in one hand and an imperial laurel wreath in the other. The cornucopia, or Horn of Plenty, was a symbol linked with the goddess Demeter, or Circes, depending on whether you prefer your gods Roman or Greek, a deity with whom Agrippina was regularly associated. She is also wearing a diadem, which traditionally designates godhood, and together, these two symbols elevate Agrippina, already of course an Augusta with all the links that that entailed, to a new divine plane. The imperial laurel wreath was seen as the imperial crown, and in this relief she is using it to crown her son Nero as emperor. This is big, because this relief is directly attributing his becoming emperor to her, making her the kingmaker, and by extension, essentially saying that she had the power to do so. So, purely from this evidence, we can say that, at this moment, she held the most exalted and powerful position of any woman in Roman history. But what they do not do is give us tangible examples of how she used that power, and for that, of course, we need to go to the sources. On this, they are, as usual, infuriatingly vague. While they describe and frequently bemoan the fact that she held such extensive power, they are extremely light on the specifics. But there are some scraps of information. One area in which she seems to have taken a lot of interest was foreign policy. She's reported to have hosted and negotiated with foreign leaders when they visited Rome, and they in turn would have paid homage to her as well as to her son the emperor. She also played a role in the greatest foreign crisis of the early part of Nero's reign. Rome's great rival throughout the imperial period was Parthia, the successor state to the Persian Empire that had been crushed by Alexander the Great. On their shared border stood the buffer state of Armenia, an area of constant struggle and intrigue. In 54, the same year as Nero's accession, Parthia invaded Armenia, forcing Nero and his advisers to make a response. According to Tacitus, Agrippina was involved, possibly heavily, in the Roman reaction to the invasion, which involved deployment of troops to the region. Agrippina is also, naturally, linked with a number of murders in this period. Of course she is. The first of these was a man named Marcus Junius Silanus, who had formerly been a consul and governor of Asia. Now, that name will ring a bell as his brother, Lucius Junius Silanus, had been a victim of hers during the reign of Claudius. According to Tacitus, quote, The first death under the new emperor, that of Junius Silanus, was, without Nero's knowledge, planned by the treachery of Agrippina. Not that Silanus had provoked destruction by any violence of temper, apathetic as he was, and so utterly despised under former despotisms that Caligula used to call him the golden sheep. The truth was that Agrippina, having contrived the murder of his brother, dreaded his vengeance, for it was the incessant popular talk that preference ought to be given over Nero, who was scarcely out of his boyhood, and had gained the empire by crime, 
to a man of mature age, of blameless life, of noble birth. This was the cause of his destruction. The accusation, basically, is that Agrippina feared Solanus's vengeance over the fall of his brother, now that he had become a powerful man, and now also there were mutterings that he would make a far better emperor than the boy Nero. Unable to make a charge of treason stick, Agrippina resorted to that most common of womanly weapons, poison, having Solanus killed at a dinner. Now her involvement in all of this is disputed, indeed some have cast out over whether Solanus was even murdered at all, but this all plays into the image of Agrippina as a vicious poisoner and a ruthless perjurer of the enemies of her son. Even if Solanus had died of natural causes, she likely would not have rushed to quell that image of her. Nero did not face any significant challenge to his rule in these early years, and much of the credit for that has to go to Agrippina, who had worked so hard to smooth the path for him over the years. The other major murder of the period has a slightly different flavour to it. The freedman Narcissus had been a thorn in her side for many years, as you'll remember from the last few episodes. Most recently he had backed the cause of the succession of Britannicus, but had been out of town, receiving treatment for gout when the news reached him of the death of Claudius. Now a sensible man probably would have quietly escaped into exile at this news. His entire political career was based off the patronage of Claudius, and with him gone, he had no real allies remaining. He had alienated too many people in the Senate, thanks to his support of Messalina during her reign of terror, and so when he returned to Rome after the accession of Nero, he was placed under house arrest. Not long after, he was either murdered or forced to commit suicide outside of the tomb of Messalina. Again, the sources place the blame here at the feet of Agrippina. While the death of Solanus appears to have been motivated by the desire to protect her own position and that of her son, the murder of Narcissus has more than a whiff of payback about it. The freedman did not pose much of a threat to her, especially as he was under guard, and could easily have been exiled or even simply kept under house arrest. But he had been such an irritant for her for so long. It must have been very satisfying for her to exact revenge upon him. As I've said, for the first year or so of Nero's reign, Agrippina reigned supreme. But her glory would be short-lived, as she faced pushback from three directions. The first was from Nero's two other main advisers, the Praetorian prefect Burrus and his former tutor-turned-political advisor Seneca. The two were not natural allies, but they did manage to squeeze Agrippina away from the action. They had the great advantages of being men, and therefore able to access areas that Agrippina could not. For example, while she had to attend the Senate behind a screen, they could enter it freely. They had their own legislative programme, for which they obtained the support of Nero and then enacted through the Senate, but largely they worked to ingratiate themselves with the Emperor himself, and pull him away from his mother's clutches. The second direction was the Court of Public Opinion. In his biography of Agrippina, Antony Barrett very clearly explains the problem that she faced. Quote, For as long as Claudius was alive, Agrippina's influence over him would inevitably have caused offence. But the aggressive wife who influenced affairs indirectly through a compliant husband was a familiar phenomenon, one that Romans had learned reluctantly to live with. But with the accession of Nero, Romans were faced with a true novelty and a deeply disturbing one. 
a woman who seemingly sought power in her own right. Clearly, to many Romans, Agrippina would have seemed in 54 not merely offensive, but a dangerous threat to the whole Roman order. Rome wasn't exactly in uncharted waters here. Remember that Livia had continued to have tremendous influence over Tiberius' government after he became emperor, but there were a few differences there. First, Tiberius was considerably older, and so Livia was not seen as being in the same position of authority over him as Agrippina was with Nero. Livia had also been around far longer and garnered a stronger base. And finally, Tiberius was a far more stable emperor, at least at first, than Nero was. And this was the final direction from which Agrippina faced pushback, Nero himself. The roots of this are actually fairly obvious. Think about it. You are a teenager, suddenly thrust into the most powerful role in the world. Your whole life, you have been told that you are special, better than everyone else, because you are the grandson of Germanicus and direct descendant of the divine Augustus. You gain the throne peacefully, but everyone accredits your success to the nefarious actions of your mother. She has been guiding your career since you are an infant, and to you, she still seems to treat you like a child. She wants to rule essentially as your regent. She wants control. But you're not a boy anymore. You want to establish yourself as your own man. You want to rule, and you don't want your mum telling you what to do anymore. When you think about it that way, it's easy to see why Nero would have pushed back against his mother. And it is Agrippina's greatest mistake in that she thought he would remain pliant. She assumed that he would have the same respect for her abilities and rely upon her in the same way as Claudius had, but in that, she was wrong. Dead wrong. While Nero had been content to play ball for the first months of his reign while he got his feet under the table, he quickly began to chafe at her attempts to assert control. Tacitus wrote of her that she, quote, could give her son empire, but could not endure that he should be emperor. Suetonius claims that, quote, his mother offended him by too strict surveillance and criticism of his words and acts. The problem was that Nero didn't seem to want to rule in a manner of which Agrippina approved. He was fond of performance, of singing, dancing and acting, and while this was indulged by sycophants and opportunists around him, such as Burrus and Seneca, Agrippina tried to correct him, saying that this was not the proper conduct of a Julio-Claudian, much less an emperor of Rome. She also disapproved of his spending policies. While some of his early spending was fairly sensible, such as a donative to the army to keep them on side and various payments to supporters, Nero was prone to moments of outrageous extravagance and would react with childish impetulance when his mother chided him for it. And why not? Who among us have enjoyed it when our parents have tried to impress upon us the value of money? and most of us did not receive control of a great imperial treasury while still a teenager. Cassius Dio states that, quote, Whereas at first Nero was comparatively moderate in the dinners he gave, in the revels he conducted, and in his drinking and amours, yet later, as no one reproved him for this conduct and the public business was handled no the worse for it, he came to believe that such conduct was really not bad, and that he could carry it even farther. Consequently, he began to indulge in each of these pursuits in a more open and precipitate fashion. And in case his guardians ever said anything to him by way of advice, or his mother by way of admonition, he would appear abashed while they were present, and would promise to reform, but as soon as they were gone, 
he would again become the slave of his desire and yield to those who were leading him in the other direction, since they were dragging him downhill. This increasingly childish behaviour of Nero's is then shown in greater light in an anecdote also related by Cassius Dio. Quote, He once ordered ten million sesterces to be given at one time to Dioforus, who was in charge of petitions during his reign. And when Agrippina caused the money to be piled up in a heap, hoping that when he should see it all together he would change his mind, he asked how much the mass before him amounted to, and, upon being informed, doubled it, saying, I didn't realise I'd given him so little. Isn't that a wonderful anecdote? In short, in a fight between two people, one attempting to moderate the narcissism of an arrogant egotist, and the other whom indulged him, there would only ever be one winner. The rift between mother and son, and its exploitation by those around him, actually began to emerge as early as Nero's accession speech to the Senate, penned by Seneca, of course. Along with all the usual platitudes, he criticised the rule of Claudius, saying that he would bring an end to the civil strife of his reign. While it was perhaps sensible to downgrade the achievements of his predecessor in order to make him look greater, it was a bit of a slap in the face to his mother, who of course had been intimately involved in Claudius's administration. He followed this up by reversing a number of his reforms, ones that she had supported and helped push through, especially some rather repressive judicial ones. These ingratiated Nero to the Senate, but once again represented a rollback of Agrippina's legacy. Another embarrassment to Agrippina came when a pro-Roman delegation from Armenia came to Rome in late 54. She had taken a great interest in the resolution of the crisis, but she found that she had been excluded from the formal ceremonies accompanying the visit. She had always been involved in such occasions under Claudius, and so, either convinced that it was an oversight or determined to make a scene, she showed up anyway. This breach of protocol caused quite the kerfuffle, and forced Nero to come greet her, and some excuse was made so that they departed together. This prevented a highly embarrassing incident in front of the guests, but it still represented a tremendous come-down for Agrippina. So, even in 54, Agrippina was finding her control over her son weakening, and 55 would see two great shocks that would see her lose it entirely. The first was over her son's mistress. I haven't talked too much about Nero's marriage to Octavia, as we'll look at it in more detail in a later episode, but suffice it to say that it wasn't a particularly happy match. The marriage was very much engineered originally by Agrippina, and so Nero harboured some resentment towards her for that. At some point, not sure when, the emperor fell for a free woman called Acte. Emperors were expected to take mistresses, and indeed it was seen as a positive that he had taken one from a lower rank rather than the wife of a senator. But Acte was no dupe, and seems to have held considerable ambitions of her own. She established a household of her own, and seems to have shared Nero's passions towards her, and probably exerted a tremendous amount of influence over him. As I said a few times before, there was only ever room for one woman at the top of Roman society, and so Agrippina would have seen this as a tremendous challenge to her authority. But she also seems to have taken this rather personally. The Nero-Octavia match represented one of her proudest achievements, as it united the Julian and Claudian sides of the family, the family that she venerated above all else. Thus, she saw this as yet another rejection of her legacy as empress. 
The problem is that her opposition to Acte could only ever be seen as the actions of an interfering, power-hungry, jealous mother. Tacitus probably reflects the general view of Rome in this passage. Quote, Agrippina, however, raved with a woman's fury about having a freedwoman for a rival, a slave girl for a daughter-in-law, with the like expressions. Nor would she wait till her son repented or wearied of his passion. The fouler her approaches, the more powerfully did they inflame him, till completely mastered by the strength of his desire, he threw off all respect for his mother and placed himself under the guidance of Seneca. Perhaps seeing how her actions were backfiring, Agrippina quickly changed tack, even offering Nero the use of her own quarters so that the affair could take place more discreetly. Which is a little gross, if you think about it. But it was too late. Even more damage had now been done to her relations with her son. Her attempts to guide him to become the emperor that she wanted him to be were being thoroughly thwarted by those around him who indulged him, and now they moved in for the kill. She may have no longer been one of her son's trusted advisers anymore, but Agrippina was still a powerful figure, and so taking her down would still be fraught with risk. Any move against her would first need to chip away at the supports that held her at the top. One pillar, that of Chief Confident of Nero, was now gone, but there were others. Chief among them was the Freedman Palace. Remember, he was the money, and his alliance with Agrippina had been key to the running of the Claudian government in the last years of his reign. Remove Agrippina's access to the imperial treasury, and you would strike a great blow. While it is unclear as to what exactly Pallas was accused of by Nero, it was likely some sort of charge of embezzlement. Fearful of the consequences of a show trial, Pallas took a plea bargain, agreeing to go quietly and with honour. A wounded animal is a highly dangerous one, and the sources report that, at this point, Agrippina lost her trademark cool and made a fateful mistake. While making her son emperor had been her chief goal, this was not just out of maternal pride. It was also partly out of selfish ambition. She saw herself as having as much right to political influence as Nero, and so did not take at all well to being sidelined. Therefore, in response to these two blows, she decided to make a counterattack with an extremely bold move. Britannicus was on the cusp of coming of age, and Agrippina apparently publicly made a threat to her son. Allow her back into his inner circle, or she would spill the beans on everything. The murders, the plots, everything that had led him to the throne. She went as far as to threaten to take Britannicus to the Praetorians and have them proclaim him emperor instead of Nero. Now, even if this story has been exaggerated a bit, there seems no doubt that Agrippina made veiled threats to her son, reminding him of what she had done to get him on the throne and of the threat that Britannicus could still pose to his position. He was the natural-born son of Claudius, after all. But in doing this, she had severely miscalculated because she failed to see the obvious solution that would immediately occur to Nero. That was, get rid of Britannicus. Now, historians dispute whether Britannicus was actually murdered or not, but everyone at the time was pretty darn sure that he was, so I'll tell you the story anyway. Basically, according to Tacitus, Nero discovered that the same woman who had supplied the poison that killed Claudius was in imperial custody. As a man with a tremendous flair for the dramatic, 
Nero resolved to have his stepbrother killed in as public a place as possible. He decided to have the deed done at a dinner, intended by all the great and good, including, of course, Agrippina. Now, Britannicus had the use of a food taster to protect him against such nefarious designs, but Nero and his accomplices had come up with a way around that. Quote, A drink, still harmless, very hot and already tasted, was handed to Britannicus. Then, when he declined it as too warm, cold water was poured in, and with it the poison, which ran so effectively through his whole system that he simultaneously lost both voice and breath. There was a startled movement in the company seated around. The more obtuse began to disperse, while those who could read more clearly sat motionless, their eyes riveted on Nero. From Agrippina, in spite of her control of her features, came a flash of such terror and mental anguish that it was obvious she had been as completely in the dark as the prince's sister Octavia. She saw, in fact, that her last hope had been taken, that the precedent for matricide had been set. Whether or not this actually happened, or if in fact the sickly Britannicus merely conveniently died of natural causes at this precise moment, there was no doubt at the time that Nero had indeed had his stepbrother murdered. Indeed, it was seen as a great power move on the part of Nero, as he had at one fell swoop removed a great potential threat to his rule, and demonstrated that he had the ruthless streak that was vital in any would-be emperor. Now, the threat to Agrippina wasn't simply to her political position. As Tacitus states in that passage, she now actively feared for her life. But she still had one powerful base of support left, the Praetorian Guard. While Empress, she had handpicked most of its senior officer corps, and they were still steadfastly loyal to the family of Germanicus. While its prefect Burrus was now an enemy of hers, she could still rely on his men. Recognising this, Burrus and Seneca advised Nero to court the guard. He too was a descendant of Germanicus after all, but now that he had removed Pallas, he was able to use the power of the imperial treasury, while Agrippina could not. He raised their pay and increased their free grain ration, while at the same time he ensured that they spent far less time around his mother. Agrippina had already been forced to move out of the palace, and now he passed a law saying that Praetorian's remit would now be strictly military in nature. In this way, he was able to remove all guards defending her residence, meaning that she no longer had regular contact with them. The time was now finally ripe for the regime to make its final strike against the Dowager Empress. And because I am a frightful tease, that is where I will end the episode for this week. Next time, we will see the final fall and death of Agrippina. The blow against her would finally come from one of her old enemies, her former sister-in-law, Domitia, but it would not be enough to completely remove her from the board. Her son would therefore have to go to extreme measures to completely rid himself of his meddling mother.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.